confusion for you. All eyes on Graham Paul. Simunic, I'm certain, was yellow carded earlier on, and Graham Paul has forgotten about it. Oh, and Siemens been beaten. It's a goal. It's Ronaldinho. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And oh, what a great goal that was. In 1954, a Ferenc Puskás-inspired Hungary met West Germany in the World Cup final. At the time, the mighty Magyars were perhaps the greatest team the world had ever seen, while the Germans were in their first tournament since World War II. Hungary were unbeaten in four years. West Germany had no chance. It's the miracle of Bern. Germany, wearing white shirts, kicked off against Hungary in the World Cup final at Bern. Throughout the Cup Series, Hungary had been the favourites, and indeed it only took them six minutes to score, a splendid goal by their captain, Pushkas. <laughs> only two minutes later, the German defence fumbled and Chibo went through with another. <laughs> Much the same situation near the Hungarian goal gave Germany their first chance. Morlock took it and the score was 2-1. Seven minutes later, from a nicely placed corner, the ball went to outside right, Rahn and Germany had equalised. Hungary were naturally going all out in the second half, but the German defence survived. The big surprise came six minutes before the end, when a long shot from Rahn gave the World Cup to Germany. Welcome back to a fresh, hot episode of Got Got Need. Uh, my name is Chris Robinson, and joining me on the line, as always, is Queen's Park Rangers sympathiser, uh, Liam Baxter. <laughs> yeah, that's me. There's news of a Glenn Murray transfer today, and that made me sigh. So. <laughs> <laughs> Still knocking uh, it out. <laughs> yeah. How are you, mate? You good? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Perfect, yes. I am I'm good. We, Brilliant. <laughs> off air, we just spoke American politics, and now we're getting into... <laughs> Politics of, I don't know, World War Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but bear with us, listener, because it's yeah. not going to go the way that you might think it's going to go. But um, <laughs> yeah, so um, I hope you enjoyed the 12 um, podcasts that we put over Christmas. The oh, know, of course, little, yeah. little moments. Um, do mm. go and check them out if you haven't had the had the chance. They, they won't take up a lot of your time, but there's some uh, fun little, uh, you know, tidbits of World Cup stuff. So, uh, yeah, do go and have a look and have a listen and let us know what you think. Yeah, we didn't just get, get drunk over Christmas recording them for no reason. You might as well listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Were there any uh, particular highlights for you, Liam? Any any ones that you enjoyed uh, recording and or researching? Uh, the, the the Roger Miller one was probably the most, like, the joyous one, the, mm. the most joyous one to talk about, I think. Um, and then, I suppose, was it, I think we did, was it New Year? We did, uh, or Diana, we examined Diana Ross's penalty. So that- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. We, we decided to go for some of the um, more lighthearted and silly moments, plus a couple of uh, moments that, certainly for me, I, I hadn't looked into as much detail as potentially one should do when, you know, co-hosting a World Cup podcast. But either way, <laughs> um, yeah, do go and have a listen uh as always we're brought to you uh, by the good people at zico ball do go and check out their site it's the place to find insightful and interesting football writing that you might not find other places uh, i've picked out a couple of articles that i want to throw my weight behind this week um, there's a really good piece on andrea perlo's move to nycfc and sort of what that all meant and the impact that he had on on mls and that, you know that move and everything uh, and there's another really interesting piece by cameron smith on uh Arze alkmaar's current crop of young talent they've got you know quite an, an interesting and exciting young team that's sort of doing bits in the eredivisie if you are a football manager player you'll probably recognize quite a few of the names on there because i certainly <laughs> did how about you liam yeah the, the one i've picked out for this week is um, just one that I sort of is about a player that I kind of hold quite close to my heart is um, Sam Ingram's piece on on Papu Gomez and how he's, mm. he's I mean he's almost definitely gone from Atalanta in January so 
yeah, it's, it's just, it was, it was a really good read and just a story that I'm, you know, really quite upset about <laughs> to see him. I'm, I'm not, it's going to be quite disappointing to see him leave. Mm. Um, yeah, we're, 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 both, so, yeah. we're both Atalanta fanboys in, in a way, aren't we? So uh, <laughs> where, where do you think he'll end up? Yeah, I was, I, as long as it, like, I really hope he doesn't go to Juve because it just seems, it, it seems too easy and almost a bit of a cheat code for them to just add him to the ranks as well. Um, yeah, I agree. Any anywhere but anywhere but Juve, and yeah, I'll be happy as long as it as long as it's still on like a decent time. It doesn't go to Mexico or somewhere where I can't watch him anymore. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's the I've got like a best case scenario and a worst case scenario in my head. The best case scenario, like the romantic one, is is him Paul's going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely fucking not. <laughs> Kenny Jacket will turn him into a I don't know <laughs> second-rate Peter Crouch or something. Um, I would love to see him go to Roma. I think that it would be um, yeah. a really sort of romantic, romantic. story yeah. and and you know giving them another option other than uh, other than Ed and Jacko. The worst case scenario for me is him going to to China actually because I think it'll just be a waste. Yeah, I, yeah, that's uh, it's always funny that like whether. I never really know whether China's still an option for players because there was that whole like, oh, we're not buying any more foreign talent. Yeah. So I don't know whether that is an option for him. I hope it's not. Um, yeah, Roma's a nice choice. Roma would be a nice little yeah. landing spot for him. Um, but yeah, I just it's just a shame that it's come to an end as it has. And yeah. so yeah, that's that's the piece that I'm bumping this week is uh, Sam's piece on on Papu. Wonderful, wonderful. So today's episode, uh, we are covering the World Cup final from 1954. Hungary versus West Germany. So it's gonna it sounds like a really odd one to pick out, but the story is it has many, many layers to it, I think. So what what particularly interested you about about this as a as a game and a story, I suppose? Um so this has to be probably the biggest final upset, we think. Mm. Right? I think yeah. but because you know the the team known as the, you know, the Hungarians, the Mighty Magyars. They're infamous as being one of the probably the best team never to win, right? Never yeah. to win the World Cup. They were synonymous with greatness throughout the fifties. A kind of post war, the first post war like footballing powerhouse, mm. really, weren't they? Mm. And the story of this is is basically they were the, they were the champions elect, right? They were supposedly just supposed to roll into world cup 54 the the first world cup after the second world war um after it sort of took that hiatus mm. through through the war and walk out walk in smash everyone leave with the winners um leave, leave the winners and it, it just well it didn't go like that did it so no. mm. yeah i just think it's it's the biggest upset we've seen in a final and yeah scratch the surface and there's a hell of a lot more to it and <laughs> yeah i think f- for me uh, i don't think enough people know about this golden generation of, of Hungarian football, which sounds like a real football cork sniffer thing to say, but <laughs> um, <laughs> cork sniffer. Yeah, you know, I I, I sound like uh, you know your mate Perlo um, ser- serving up a hot glass <laughs> of uh, hot glass of you know a hot glass of vino and uh, mm. you know serving some takes, but you know <laughs> footballing sommelier on this podcast. <laughs> you know the, the term golden generation is thrown around. A lot but this is you know a spectacular period of uh, of football history and certainly in Hungary it's a game that is sometimes called the greatest comeback ever so that that is particularly interesting to me as well and the impact of this game and the result is massive in terms of football as a whole in football in both countries and the history of both countries I don't think that you would have the Hungary that you have today and you wouldn't have the West Germany that you have today were it not for the fallout of this game. I think it's that big. Yeah, it's, I mean, not to to sully the podcast with like, it's, it's kind of an atomic bomb of a game, isn't it? Because the mm. fallout is so much bigger than than the, the, the actual game itself. So for sure, yeah. it's what comes after it and, and kind of what kind of shakes out once the final whistle blows that makes this kind of uh, just a really interesting game to dig into so let's get into it the 1954 world cup the fifth world cup ever hosted in switzerland the first world cup to have tv coverage and also the first world cup to have an official film 
Um, there's actually quite a lot of those on Amazon Prime. So if you've got Amazon Prime and you search World Cup film or you just search FIFA or something, you'll probably be able to see most of, if not all, of the official World Cup films. And they are not bad. Some of them are <laughs> worse than others because let's just say that FIFA's production standards and values are a little cheesy at times and they're very <laughs> of of the time like they're really dated you watch like the 98 one and it's got these swooping itv-esque graphics on the screen and everything but you know they're, they're a good historical context good good and you know worth a watch um I, I picked out some extra sort of like fun facts and trivia from uh from this tournament as well so mm-hmm. the, the the one that I struggled to wrap my head around the most was uh, around the, the format. So, mate, the format of this tournament is uh, it's <laughs> it, it, it's bananas. Like, I don't understand how how they got to the opening group game. Looked at the <laughs> tournament, were like, yeah, this works. You know yeah, how you just kind of look at sensible. things. Yeah. In, in you like look at inventions and stuff like I don't know, mm-hmm. a penny farthing with a massive big wheel. Like, w- at what point did someone think, yeah, that's something that's doable. That's something that will work. We'll use that. This format doesn't yeah. make any fucking sense whatsoever. It's kind of like when they did the... You know when they changed penalties? So rather than going A, B, A, B, they went like A, B, B, A, B, Yeah, yeah, yeah. confused everyone, didn't it? <laughs> and it was sort of like, what, why? And they went, banter, in it. And it's kind of like <laughs> one of those. Yeah. It's so, just a really odd like odd way to, to structure yeah. a tournament, isn't it? So, yeah, so the way, the way it works is you've got 16 qualifying teams divided into four groups of four teams each. Fair enough. Each group contains two seeded teams and two unseeded teams. But then there's only four matches scheduled for each group, each pitting a seeded team against an unseeded team. So contrast to a usual round robin in which every team plays each other team, it's just really odd. Why I, There's no reason why they did it that way. I suppose it's because they wanted the higher seeded teams to go through to the, like the knockouts and final to make it more yeah. entertaining. I don't know what that... Yeah, I, I couldn't find anything to to discuss what the logic was for this tournament. Because if you take Group 2, for example, which is kind of the one that we're going to look at today, so you've got Hungary, Turkey, West Germany, South Korea. So Hungary and West Germany are the seeded teams in that group. Turkey and South Korea are the unseeded. So Hungary plays, I think it's South Korea and West Germany. West Germany play Turkey and Hungary, right? So yeah. you only play two games in each group, which means you don't play... Some, there's there's one team in your group you don't play, mm. which just seems like, like Why? <laughs> it's just yeah. a really weird way of divvying out opponents and the west germans kind of use it to their own advantage in a way later on but it's just a it's just a really strange way of of structuring you know the, the biggest tournament in world football they also had um so extra, extra time was kind of weird in this tournament as well so in most tournaments extra time is not employed at the group stage but if the score was level after 90 minutes then they would do extra time I, d- I don't understand it it's sort of like in the group game right yeah, yeah. so if, if it was a draw after 90 minutes in a group you play extra time to find out you know who the winner who the winner is who gets yeah. all, well it's two points isn't it and, and then but points. rather than going like okay we'll go to penalties to decide it if it was still level after 120 minutes they'll just go okay it's a draw then it's like I'll just <laughs> call it a draw after 90 <laughs> so weird yeah just really, <sighs> it's just a really strange way of doing it because then after after the group phase, they structured it so the knockouts were every every top of the so in all four groups you've got four teams that top of the group they will all play each other in a pathway to the final and all the second place teams play each other so so you'll end up with a final being one of the first place teams against one of the second place teams, which is how this it's all sort of shaked out because you've got Hungary mm-hmm. against West Germany in the final after yeah. playing each other in the groups. Just a really, really strange way of... I don't understand really who yeah. thought, yeah, that's fine. We'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all very glad that they saw sense and changed it, for sure. Um, so let's talk about Hungary, the golden generation. So Hungary in the 50s, as we've you know mentioned, were, you know as you mentioned, you know this football powerhouse. And you know, the, the nickname, the mighty Magyars, the magnificent Magyars, the, you know whatever you know magical magyars they had all sorts of nicknames this team is associated with quite a few notable matches um including one we'll talk about in a second called you know nicknamed the match of the century against england in 1953 um 
they you know had some pretty high profile you know for the time high profile wins um against england uruguay who as as we know we've talked about they were you know winners in the 30s and you know a, a bit of a, an influence on the world cup they beat the soviet union as well when it was at the height of its power between 1950 and 1956 the team recorded 42 victories seven draws and one defeat which was the, <laughs> it's this game that we're going to talk about today yeah it's an obscene record they're just like this this team effectively just reinvented the way that that football was was just kind of played wasn't it because they've got mm. a team packed full of talent um Ferrick Priscas, Nandor, Hidaguchi, Sandor, Koshis I think it is um and they're just like this team is just packed full of just unbelievable players and they take a lot of teams because because they will play behind the iron curtain as well. They they take a lot of a lot of teams, including England, which we'll get onto in a minute, completely by surprise because people don't really think that they're going to be up to much. Mm. And then they just stroll into town, batter them across the park, and then leave again and go back to the relatively sort of anonymity of of being a Soviet state. So yeah, yeah and 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 you know the the this whole the team, the setup, and everything is you know so ahead of its time you know they're generally credited for implementing the earliest form of total football they're generally recognized as well for you know adopting new tactical innovations scientific coaching methods all of which have obviously been adopted throughout the game and you know off air we were talking about how america kind of needs a big sam to just sort of see them through (laughs) you know hungary were big sam before big sam was big sam (laughs) I mean, they came yeah. up with all the stuff that Big Sam sammed. Yeah, there's a there's a really good. I, 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 we always bring him up, Jonathan Wilson, right? In <laughs> inverting the pyramid, um, that for the first half of the 20th century, both from a footballing and a political point of view, Hungary had existed in the shadow of Austria. Mm. Their thinking had inevitably been influenced by Hugo Meisel and the Danubian Whirl. But the crucial point was that it was thinking in Budapest, as in Vienna football was a matter for intellectual debate so they were like i've read um uh wilson's book uh actually i've read, read it the, the summer just gone um the names had long ago and that's basically all about hungarian football and how it was treated as as this sort of yeah just a topic for intellectual debate in these kind of cafes and bars and stuff and people would really get into the nitty-gritty of tactics and and try and reinvent the game that the english created and that's essentially what this team did yeah, so on the subject of the English, let's talk about the, the, the 6-3 versus England at Wembley. So this is what they called the match of the century. So Wembley Stadium, 1953, 105,000 people packed out the stadium to watch England play Hungary. Uh, you know, you've got the the then world's number rank, number one ranked team in Hungary, the Olympic champions on a run of 24 unbeaten games, um, and England. Um, <laughs> you've, I'm not going to go into too much into you know what, what happened in the game specifically, but basically Hungary won 6-3, and the result of that game led to a complete review of the training, the tactics, everything used... Um, an international and club level across the whole England setup, so it, it kind of shook everything up. And I've got a few really, really good Bobby Robson quotes that that I'll I'll go into in a minute. But but you know, when you were sort of reading into this, what were your immediate sort of thoughts and you know uh, bits that you uncovered? Well, this is this is quite an infamous result in English football. It's it's that, and then there's the the defeat against the USA in 1950 as well. Are the two kind of like then uh, sort of results from sort of the middle of the century that that really shook the FA to its core, I suppose. Because this going into going into this game in 1953, England's team had only suffered one defeat on home soil before this game. I think it was against the Republic of Ireland in 1949. I think it was. Um, and so entering like going into this game, the English side are just kind of full of like overconfidence and and hubris, and they just expect. They, I think they kind of know that hung, this hungry side are are, are decent. But they, I don't think they expect the kind of the whipping that they get mm. when the when the whistle blows. Um, and so you kind of watch the footage of this game and the football that England kind of play in these like straight lines, these kind of banks of four. 
and you kind of watch what the Hungarians are doing with the ball and there's there, there is a so Hungary go one nil up one nil up inside 45 seconds and I think at that point you just kind of it pans around the stadium and you just kind of see a lot of English supporters just think oh shit <laughs> what have we let ourselves in for and then I think one of the the clip that that I well the sort of the, the highlight that I really like focused on when I was, when I was looking at this game there's a there's a, there's a bit where um Pushkas has the ball inside the the six yard box, I think it is, and he he, he does a drag back basically, and it's I, I looked at, looked up the, the defender's name. His name's Billy Wright. So he's supposedly one of the best defenders in the game at that point. He kind of lunges into a tackle. Pushkas drags it back with this with such like it's kind of robotic kind of he just kind of his feet know exactly what he's doing, and then he just smashes it into the roof of the net. And it doesn't look like anyone in the stadium whether they're in the starting 11 for the English or any of the 100,000 fans in attendance had ever seen close control like that before. Mm. And and it's just one of those games where there's just got one side that's so utterly better than the other one. I think it was the, the final shot count was like 25 to 5. Mm. Game ends 6-3. And I think England's, the, the, the FA turned around and was like, right, okay, we'll, um, we'll play you once more. We'll, we'll play you out in Budapest. Um, a year later, I think it was in 1954, and they got pumped 7-1, and that was Hungary's <laughs> last warm-up game before the 54 finals. So they they battered England at home 7-1, and then were like, right, let's go to the World Cup. <laughs> so so in in two games versus England, they won what 13-4. Yep, yep, <laughs> utterly wiped the floor yeah. with them. So this is yeah, a, a, an English side that were just complete like thoroughly overconfident. Like yeah, we'll be fine. Mm. and they just got like on home soil got utterly taken apart by the hungarians yeah the bobby robson quotes are really interesting i mean he said we saw a style of play a system of play that we'd never seen before none of these players meant anything to us we didn't know about pushkas all of these fantastic players they were men from mars as far as we were concerned they were coming to england england had never been beaten at wembley this would be a three four maybe even five nil demolition of a small country who were just coming into european football they called Pushkas the galloping major because he was in the army. How could this guy serving for the Hungarian army come to Wembley and rifle us to defeat? But the way that they played, their technical brilliance and expertise, our wide midfielder formation was kiboshed in 90 minutes of football. The game had a profound effect, not just on myself, but on all of us. He then said, that one game alone changed our thinking. We thought that we would demolish this team. England at Wembley, we are the masters. They are the pupils. It was absolutely the other way. Yeah, just thoroughly underestimated them. Just mm-hmm. completely thought, yeah, we'll wipe the floor with them. Just, I guess there was no scouting network in that time. <laughs> yeah, and then as we get get on to you know West Germany, and it's almost like the the polar opposite when you think of yeah, Ger- completely when you think of Germany these days. Um, you think of them, you know. Oh, you know, you you play a game of football, and after ninety minutes, the Germans win it. You know, I think it was a, a, a paraphrased Gary Lineker there, but, um, <laughs> very poorly. But you know, you get you get the, we get the point. We get the point. It's fine. Um, so Germany in the in the fifties. So after the end of the Second World War, you have three German entities that emerge from the Second World War: West Germany, East Germany, and the Saar Protectorate. Uh, weren't admitted to FIFA until late 1950, so as a result, they missed the 1950 World Cup. You had, in the early 1950s, you had uh, the national team coach, uh, Sepp Herberger, who had occupied that role between 1936 and 1942. He built the West German team around, basically around the players from Kaiserslautern, who were the German champions of uh, 1951 and 1953. So, you know, it's a very young nation. It's a very inexperienced team. Basically, the equivalent of you know, like when England used to just call up all of the players from Man United because they'd just won the league, sort of thing. <laughs> that that's the kind of approach here. So, uh, but prior to the, the the 1954 tournament, West Germany had only played a few friendly internationals and had a very short qualifying campaign. You know. They, they're they a new nation you know not a lot of exposure not a lot of experience a lot of people inside germany were unclear and a little bit nervous about the quality of this german team um it, they were going into the unknown yeah essentially i think there's it was 
prior to the prior to the the the, the Second World War, they've got the the German side as a whole have got one of the strongest. 11s or strongest sort of pools of players to pick from like across Europe because they, they, they finished third at the 34 World Cup and then going into to like 1938 so just pre-war years they go 11 games unbeaten and then as the second world war kind of I guess it rages on they this whole team just gets completely dismantled because of the war effort so I think mm-hmm. I, I read that you, you mentioned Sepp Herberg already so he he was the manager pre-war he um tried he sort of really tried his utmost to ensure that his national team i think he had some kind of pull with with the i don't know with the third reich with the the kind of upper management of germany at this point and he kind of had some pull so what he did was he tried to ensure that his national team players sort of pre-war were kept away from the front lines they were like i think he forged documents at times to kind of bring them home from the front lines if they got sent out there or they he secured them kind of fairly safe jobs at uh, i read one was at a local airbase um, it didn't really all go to plan because I, I did I did read that um, one of their finest foot one of the younger like the young talents that they produced was a young it was a guy called Adolf Adolf Urban who who played for Schalke and he made his debut for the national side at, at just twenty one in nineteen thirty five he helped Schalke to a league title in nineteen forty two and then so that's during the war hmm. and then played in their cup final defeat to eighteen sixty Munich later on that year. That was his last game because he got sent to Stalingrad. Uh, so along with two million others, he just never returned home. So a lot of the a lot of the national team and the national setup was just absolutely decimated. Mm. And so in 1943, international football matches they stopped completely for Germany. Um, by 1944, all club football was ground to a halt as well because of this like full-on war um, effort. I think it was Joseph Goebbels that coined the term sort of all-out war. Mm. Um, and then once the war ends, Germany was just kind of picked apart by its allies and rationed off. So mm. that's why you get the whole, is it, is it the Saar Protectorate? Protectorate, that's it. Mm. Um, East Germany, West Germany, or it's just split into bits then. And so yeah. like old sporting clubs are just disbanded and large public gatherings are banned. So you can't really get a game of football together. Um, to the whole country, the whole footballing setup is just completely decimated. So I think it's, it's just after the war that Sepp Herberger kind of takes over again and he starts to gradually kind of reform this this West German national setup, basically. It was kind of rebuilt and established for... I think it was it was established for a tour in 1950 and they, this West German side slowly... They kind of stutter through some... Through the early 50s, they, they pick up marginal victories over over Austria and, and Saarland. But then they they lose against Ireland and Turkey. So going into the fifty four World Cup, they're all amateurs. They're they're relatively new. They're relatively fresh, and they're not they've not strung together a chain of wins. So they're not. No one expects them to to go on and win the whole tournament. Yeah, and you know, just to touch on Herberger a, a little bit more. I mean, it is worth noting, just for the record, you know, he he was a former Nazi. Um, that is one of the reasons why he had certain sway and certain pull. Um, he, When he actually got the job in 1936, originally, he, the, how he got it was he replaced a, a guy called Otto Nertz, who was another former Nazi, who was sacked after his team embarrassed the Fuhrer by losing to Norway at the 1936 Olympics. So... You know, not the kind of thing that you want to be doing is uh, being the f- Germany national football team manager losing to what is deemed to be an inferior Norway and then um, presumably never being seen again. So, <laughs> no, yeah, can't imagine he was. Yeah, you know, a deeply challenging time in history for, you know, obviously the world and, and, and you know, within Germany as well. Um, and and as we say, you know, sort of coming into the the, the fifty four World Cup, there's, I would say, not a not a great deal of expectation um, of this team. It's sort of like a a hit and hope. See see how far you can get. Yeah, definitely. I think in terms of it, in terms of the the sort of the the two countries that make the final, it's sort of one that's just like I say, they're, they're champions elect. Everyone thinks right, they're 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 going to win it. We all know that already. Odds on favourites, and the other team is just a complete uh, like complete underdog really with with a set of fans as well that don't really know if they can show public support of their national team and stuff as yeah. well because i guess they're uh, kind of 
get onto that a bit later on. It's just a, a set of people that are kind of uncomfortable in, you know, waving the colours of their own flag. Mm. So, as we go into the, the the game, I mean, there's a lot of high scoring uh, games in the group stages and, and the build up. I think actually this World Cup holds still holds some records for around like most goals scored and you know highest scoring games and everything. Yeah. You, so the records that still stand today as well. So mm. highest goals per game average is 5.38. Um, highest team goal total and goal difference is Hungary. So they've scored 27 and they've got a goal difference of plus 17. And then highest for and against total by a winner. So West Germany, the 25 and then a goal difference of plus 14. So it's just, yeah, just goals going in all over the show in this tournament. Yeah, because in the, in the groups, as you mentioned, you know, so hung- Hungary... You know, play West Germany in the group stage a couple of weeks prior to this final when they beat them 8-3. They also played South Korea in the groups who they beat 9-0. Mm. West West Germany play uh, Turkey uh, and beat them 7-2. They then play Austria, I think it's in the next round, who they beat 6-1. So it's just... It's like Boxing Day 1991 League <laughs> type scores when, when all the players had had a, a few too many jars on Christmas Day. Yeah. It's There's utter shellackings all over the show. The um the eighth, I think the one of the things that I did read is the 8-3 between Hungary and West Germany in the group stage was supposedly just kind of a bit of a red herring, a bit of a misnomer because I think what, what happened was the West Germans supposedly played... They, both Hungary and West Germany won their first group, were their first group games by quite a significant margin. And mm. then the West Germans put out a reserve side against Hungary because they wanted the sec- like the, to finish second for an easier route to the uh, final. I think that's what it was supposedly like. That, that was the logic behind it was, look, if we just put out a, put out a reserves here, they'll finish top. They can play the, the Brazils and the Uruguay and then we'll just... They played, I think, West Germany played Yugoslavia and was it Austria? You Austria, said 6-1. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they played the lesser, the lesser mm. sides in the second place sort of route tactical loss okay interesting so the the first half of the game i mean it it gets off i mean it takes no time to sort of get going does it really no it's within within minutes within 10 minutes hungry two nil up so so it utterly like the weather for this game is torrential rain so it just hammers it down all game and within within that it's the first six minutes push gas like the 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 ball kind of ricochets off a west german defender right into his path and yeah. on the left hand side of the six yard box and he just kind of rifles it home across the turf it like skids across straight into the net and you know it's one nil and then two minutes later um chibor zoltan chibor pokes home you know just after some kind of really fumbled goalkeeping the ball kind mm. of trickles to his feet he takes one touch to to snatch the ball away from like the writhing arms of Tony Turek in the West German goal, and then he, you know, smashes at home two 0 and I mean, game over, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Hung- Hungary two two nil up in the first ten minutes against West Germany, game over. <laughs> yeah, ten minutes in, and you've got one one goal that's a, a rebound off of a defender, and then the other one is a bit of a misunderstanding in the in the German defence. So it's it's two sort of kind of unforgivable mistakes made by the West Germans within ten minutes. But you know, as you say, you you think that it's game over, but you know, so that's that's after eight minutes, two nil up. On ten minutes, it it kind of starts to swing the other way. Yeah, so this is like after ten minutes, Maxim Warlock, I, I think he stretches just to kind of eke the ball home past past the Hungarian keeper, and they get they get the ball over the line. It makes it it's two one already. I think it's like a cross that's like slid in across the turf. Is that the? I think that's the one. I'm that, that um. Yeah, so you've got yeah you've got Fritz Walter playing in playing Ran free on the left wing and he then crosses quite low into the centre which goes through the legs of um, the the right fullback um, and then you've got another Hungarian defender sort of lunging to try and that's it yeah get, he kind of stretches yeah. out doesn't he and then yeah Morlock's kind of like right place right time to, to convert it um, to, to make it 2-1 I mean again it's, it's, it's a defensive mistake I suppose because you, you would expect the Hungarian defence to sort of clear it but I guess their approach is um, more 90s Newcastle than uh... <laughs> yeah, kind of entertainer style yeah, yeah. The, the cross was it was quite a poor cross initially because it mm. but it just kind of evades the whole the whole back line of the Hungarians it's like kind of poked back by a defender as if to sort of shepherd it back into the keeper's arms but in between it sort of hitting the Hungarian defender and getting back to the keeper, 
Morlock's in there and he stabs mm. it home, doesn't he? He's just sort of kind of diverts the ball into the back of the net and within within two two minutes of going 2-0 down, they're, they're, they're back in it at, at 2-1. Yeah, and then, so 18 minutes, um, so eight minutes later, you've got um, Fritz Walter, you know, slinging in a, a corner. You've got um, the Hungarian keeper sort of flaps at it. Ran is at the back post, slams it in for to make it 2-2 after 18 minutes. You know, you've already got you know one of the most entertaining games in World Cup history after 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean it's it's a furious start, isn't it? <laughs> like mm. the Hungarians go two 0 up really inside 10 minutes, and then within 10 minutes later the Hungarians are back in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it's a 90 minute game. There's more stuff that happens in it. I mean, the the, the first half there are no more goals in it there's obviously more more attempts for, for for both sides i don't know if there was anything else in particular that you wanted to focus on in the first half it was just kind of back and forth so i mean in terms of uh, other events that like you say it was just sort of it was a very back and forth like opening half um and the the weather just it, it cut up the pitch yeah. <laughs> it's like t- towards towards 45 minutes like the pitch is just in absolute disarray yeah, and it's it, the second half is really, really interesting for me because Hungary basically, rather than letting their heads drop, they've obviously gone in, they've talked at halftime, and they've come out and gone, we are going to absolutely go for this. So in the second half, they come out really attacking, really positive. They create plenty of chances really early on. You know, two minutes after the restart, uh, Bosic plays Pushkas free in the penalty box, but he hits the ball straight at Turek. You know, and and you know, th- th- I've got you know plenty of other examples of good chances that they have right the way through the, the second half. You know, you've got um, in the fifty fourth minute, the ball's cleared on the goal line, um, and and then three minutes after that, you've got um, you know a, 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 a headed attempt that goes against the bar. So the Hungarians are throwing everything at this. Yeah, it's one of those like quite rare games where one team is creating all the chances, but they're not profiting from it. But it's also not mm. because of heroic efforts from the goalkeeper. The, the Hungarians are just quite wasteful, aren't they? I think. Yeah, and, they, and they create so many opportunities. Well, wasteful and unlucky. Yeah, they're mm. either shooting it sort of directly at Turek in the West German goal, or it's sort of yeah, it's cleared off the line just or it hits the bar. They're, you know, it's they're, they're creating so many different like so many types of chances, and yet it's just yeah. not going in for them. Yeah, and it's and it continues right the way through the second half. Sixty-seven minutes, Turek saves a shot by Pushkas with his foot. You know, really good bit of goalkeeping. Seventy-eighth minute, um, Turek you know leaves his goal line to block a through ball. So you've got, um, oh, is it? Uh, it's Shibor. He's on rushing, and Turek decides to rush off of his line and, and clear the ball before it gets to him. I mean. This is like quite daring stuff. It's mm. <laughs> um, box office football, and you know anything could happen, kind of thing. Uh, and it's it's that, that all the way through the, the second half, and you're kind of thinking, as with other games that we've talked about in the past, when it's when the pressure all seems to be going one way, you're just waiting for the the dam to break and there to be yeah. another goal. But as you get right towards the end of the game. The dam does break, but not in the way that you're expecting, and, and it goes the other way. No, completely. It's sort of it's 84 minutes, and then it's it's helmet run again. <laughs> so he's the one that gets the equalizer, and he pops up again late on in the second half with the winner. It's just kind. Of, so it's a long ball that's kind of it's headed clear, really, isn't it, from the Hungarian box, yeah. but only only really to just as far as the D, and it's right at the feet of Ran, and he kind of steadies himself, shapes the shoot with his right, and kind of dummies the ball back onto his left, and then just. Just caresses it across the ground, mm. past the keeper, and and essentially just hands the World Cup to West Germany. Like it's it's yeah. a really nice finish, um, but yeah, very like really quite unexpected and against the run of play as well. It's a bloody great way to win a World Cup. I'll, I'll give <laughs> yeah. him that. I mean, it, it, you've got there's, there's a few names that you hear over over and over again as you sort of look through the the notes and the highlights and everything about it. Turek is obviously essentially invincible in goal and unlucky ran is involved in so much fritz walter is you know whipping in crosses low and and high and all sorts of things so you've got a few players that are really sort of stepping up here and and just doing a lot and 
I mean, Hungary do have a chance to level it right in the final minute of the game. Um, Shebor has a, a chance to equalise. <coughs> it's a shot at close range. It's stopped by Turek again. And, you know, you've got this moment from Helmut Rahn who, who's able to, to make it 3-2. And then, you know, Turek with the heroics again to, to make sure that they don't throw it away. Yeah, just another example of the, the action just going from one end to the other in quick succession, mm. though. It's like, just because, I mean, with the 84 minutes gone, you think that maybe the, the West Germans are just like, look, we'll try and see this out. But yeah, they concede yet another chance. But it just doesn't it just doesn't go in. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you wouldn't expect a 3-2 game to sort of be as exciting as that. But, you know, because the goals happen predominantly in the first half and then you've got this sort of onslaught from the Hungarians in the second half and then... West Germany sort of snatch it back it, it really does sort of go you know the, the balance of play shifts so much it's it's a really exciting game and you, you don't really get games like that anymore in general the, the pendulum swings so far the way of the Hungarians in the second half because they they just have all the chances like I I I don't know if anyone's done this I'd really like to see if they have but what the xg was for that <laughs> for that game <laughs> Because yeah. they they have all the chances in the second half, and yet, well, I mean that they, they just concede really late on to a goal from the edge of the box as well. So, mm. yeah, the the pendulum sort of swings so far one way, and then immediately with just one sort of swing of of Rahn's left foot, it goes back the other way, um, and it's just a complete and utter surprise that the West Germans won that World Cup. There was a there's a quote from from Horst Eckel who played in the centre of the park basically for, for West Germany that game he just says we were a little surprised that we'd won the World Cup in the change rooms there was no celebration we didn't even go out afterwards so so, well yeah just it took them all by surprise mm. I think so let's let's get on to, to the reaction because uh, as you can imagine you've got a, a country of very elated people and a country of very angry people uh, <laughs> yeah to say the least in, in Germany I mean I kind of some of the things that I looked into were more around the impact on the 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 actual German psyche because it it was huge the the reaction to this game and the the impact and the influence of this result were, were absolutely huge and there's a writer uh, a writer sorry called uh, Friedrich Christian Delius who who wrote about the effect on on the collective German psyche and he said that um a guilt-ridden, inhibited nation was suddenly reborn, which I, I think it sounds like quite a lot from a football game. Uh, but I found a, a really good quote from Franz Beckenbauer, who kind of sums it up a, in a little bit more detail. He says, Suddenly Germany was somebody again. For anybody who grew up in the misery of the post-war years, Bern was an extraordinary inspiration. The entire country regained its self-esteem. West Germany had existed as an entity since 1949, but the historian Joachim Fest um, reckoned that the day of the game marked the true birth of the country. So it's it's that big. Yeah, it's it's the it's, this game sort of signified like the return of national pride to to a country or at least half of a country that were yeah essentially just like quite timidly ashamed after the events of the Second World War, and as as you would be, I suppose, and like. The World Cup final was the, it's the first time since the Second World War that the German national anthem had ever been played at a, a global sporting event. So it's mm. it's kind of a watershed moment for for the people in that country. They're kind of now allowed to they feel like they're allowed to kind of wave their flags and play their anthems and yeah. be proud of of you know of, of their country and of their team. So yeah, it is sort of quite a curtain raiser for them where they're like kind of stepping back into the back out into the light again. Um and it must have just had an unbelievable sort of positive effect on on everyone that lived there how about hungary how did things go down there completely the opposite <laughs> so like budapest just goes into complete uproar there's demonstrations in the streets sort of the yeah every, everything is just a complete well it's just a bit of a riot really isn't it <laughs> yeah so in 1952 which i think was the olympics year the, the golden generation had returned to a 400,000 people strong party whereas in 1954 they waited for days in the town of tartar until the worst of the trouble had ended before they actually went to budapest because there was that big riots and demonstrations 
Yeah, they just kind of the, the players stayed well out of the way, didn't they? Really, I think there was the accusations by some of like the the players had sold the game for for Mercedes and sort of I think yeah. one one had even been accused of of, of throwing the game for a Landscourt tractor. But <laughs> all unproven. But yeah, it was just one of those things. I think everyone was just really quite. Everyone in the country was just angry, really, really, really angry. Yeah, and the the goalkeeper Grosic, he he um, described it saying that the the reaction to Hungary was terrible. Hundreds of thousands of people poured into the streets in the hours after the match. On the pretext of football, they demonstrated against the regime. In those demonstrations, I believe lay the seeds of the 1956 uprising. So. You know, when we talk about the the impact and legacy of of what this did, it's to the point of almost revolution. Yeah, and that's how that's one of the things that we've kind of found throughout this podcast is just like politics can bleed into football, but football can also bleed out into other stuff as well. Like it can Mm. be the like this this game was obviously or it's seen as like the signifier behind behind a revolution, like you say. Yeah, I mean, mean, from a footballing perspective. Hungary did kind of continue where they left off in the semi-final. So after yeah, this game, a blip. <laughs> yeah, they went another eighteen matches unbeaten. Yeah, one defeat in forty-nine games between June nineteen fifty and November nineteen fifty-five. It's just the one defeat happened to be yeah. the World Cup final in fifty-four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the one shame, game you don't but... want to lose. Yeah, yeah, but like, it was just. It just seemed to be a bit of a bump in the road for that side anyway. They just continued to steamroll our opponents afterwards, before and afterwards. It was just this one game where it just didn't happen for them. Yeah, and I, I've got. A, we're going to have another Jonathan Wilson, uh, uh, you know, mentioned. Unfortunately, keep them coming. Keep them. Tibor um, Nielisi, um, who played up front for hung- Hungary in the in the seventies and eighties. He said in, in Jonathan Wilson's book, Beyond the Curtain, he said, it's as though Hungarian football is frozen at that moment, as though we've never quite moved on from then. And I think when people talk about the golden generation and when people talk about Hungarian football, you know, those who know talk about this team and the, their records and everything. And in a, in a way, England kind of does the same thing. England's so focused on oh, 50 years of her or 66 and everything it can never properly move on from it. It can never bury that demon unless it wins something again. Same with Hungary, yeah. I would imagine. Unless if they won a Euros or they won a Nations League, which, you know, could be possible. The Nations League is one of those tournaments where, you know, anyone could win it, theoretically, the way that the, the seeding and the structure of the tournament is done. Um, you know, if they were to win something relatively major... They might be able to to bury bury this a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, it's just I think with <clears throat> with the way that this the I know that the way that that we kind of look back on the team of '66 is that we, it, it was the kind of the golden generation. They they won the World Cup in '66. This must be quite a bitter pill to swallow because they they were the best side <clears throat> in the world for what's six seven years, and yeah. they rightly should have won the world cup and they just you know they just didn't get there they just didn't get it over the line which must be even more difficult to stomach considering you know just kind of how how close they were how close they were to touching the the Jules remade trophy at that point and they just couldn't bring it home so that must be quite yeah difficult pill to swallow so looking at the historical impact um a, a little bit more you know outside of football i suppose in germany you know, I'm not attributing the, the, this success entirely to it, but obviously the impact on the German psyche and and the level of pride that it brought to the the West German people between 1949 and 1960, the West German economy grew hugely. I mean, low rates of inflation, wage increases, export quotas rising. They were able to restore the economy pretty quickly. You know, between 1950 and 1960, you know, official statistics show that their GDP grow, grew by about 7%, something like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is country on the up. And, and this game definitely would have helped the motivation and the pride element around that. Yeah, would have sparked just a, a, an uptick in morale, which I suppose would help everything yeah. else around it. If you're if you're happy, you're you're more likely to want to go to work and well I suppose in those days anyway, <laughs> you're going to want to go to work and you know kind of do what you can for 
you know to, to help your country out of the doldrums in which it is in the second world war after just after the second world war so yeah. although it's not a direct correlation it will have this this result will have sparked yeah just an uptick in morale at the very mm. least yeah and and from a footballing perspective obviously they did they did uh, host the 1974 world cup um was held in in west germany um and you know after being beaten by east germany in the first round which we've mentioned before they, they did go on to to be another sort of uh quite fancied team in in the in the 74 netherlands team the the johan cruyff team you know we've talked about that in the one of our previous episodes do do go and check that out but it's another example of west germany going up a team that everyone expected to win it and you know winning it against the odds i suppose yeah toppling the favorite in the in the most in the most crucial game isn't it yeah mm. so in hungary i mean we're we going to get onto the 1956 hungarian revolution which <laughs> i'm not going to go into that's what people tune into this podcast <laughs> yeah well you know there's revolutions going on outside there's revolutions going on in the podcast yeah. i mean this, what this... more apt day to do it on the day after a, <laughs> an attempted coup um yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, for for context, so you know, we mentioned, you know, obviously the reaction in Hungary was was really negative, and some players felt that it it sowed the seeds for this uprising, this revolution. What it was was a kind of what just shy of a month long um, revolution, nationwide revo- revolution against the Hungarian People's Republic and its Soviet-imposed policies. So. It's described as the first major threat to Soviet control since the Red Army drove Nazi Germany from its territory at the end of the Second World War. It spread really quickly. The government collapsed. You know, organised militias took to the streets, um, and after some signs of the the um, like a potential withdrawal of soviet forces basically the politburo decided to change its mind and completely crush this revolution so you had over 2500 hungarians and 700 soviet troops killed in the conflict and and 200,000 hungarians fled as refugees and after this this you know attempted revolution there were arrests deportations all sorts of stuff for months afterwards as you know the government forces basically tried to find who was possible uh, who was you know responsible sorry f- for this and, and put a crush to anyone trying to do it again and the impact on football meant that a lot of the big names left hungary as well yeah so that, i mean most of them most of the hungry well the entirety of the the hungarian side all played football in hungary most of them were all playing for one club in in budapest it was honved so mm. for them to then go on and play for some of the europe's biggest clubs afterwards like this it was this game obviously signified like right okay we'll, we'll go on and ply our trade elsewhere now yeah so you know pushkas um he moved to real madrid where he you know very famously made his name Shibor and uh, Coxis moved to Barcelona. And then at the 1958 World Cup, so only four years later, you only had four players from the Mighty Magyars still featuring in the side. Um, a complete were... turnover then. Almost yeah. complete turnover anyway. Which I think mm. well, that's what makes it even more strange that this, that the West Germans sort of won this game. Because they were just a team of amateur footballers, essentially. Mm. The, the German had no professional league at that time. No, it's basically and, just the Kaiserslautern team. Yeah, so they had no professional league. There was no no league system, and the entire side was literally just amateurs. Well, like the Hungarian side were, all, although they sort of, I think they were technically amateurs as well. But they basically they they all played football as if professionals. They played it as if it was their job, yeah. mostly at one club. They had the chemistry going for them, and and yet it was yeah a team of kind of rank amateurs that that managed to to topple them in the in the World Cup final. Yeah, um, it's a really sort of. They call it a sliding doors moment, and you know it's one of those things where if it had gone the other way, you know what would it what would it have done for Germany? What would it have done for for Hungary? I think that it's there's so many factors that go into all of this, you know, because you could argue, you know, if they had won, maybe the revolution wouldn't have taken place. Maybe 
Pushcast never would have gone to Real Madrid. What would that have done to Real Madrid? The impacts of it are then huge because would it have meant that Real Madrid didn't become, you know, the Real Madrid that we know today? And and mm. it's you know, and they're a sort of middling, sort of mid-table Real Betis size sort of team. And, <laughs> of know, course, they started their dominance of the European trophies and started sort of the late fifties, didn't they? So yeah, yeah, you're right. I think there's there's definitely a huge <coughs> question mark over that and. Yeah, it's. I think that the absence of the Hungarian sort of n- like national name on the list of World Cup winners is like it's it's just not there. Like the yeah, the absence of the Hungarian name is a big one, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's a strange one. It's one of those ones where you sit there and go, they deserved that one. How didn't that team win? I think that's why you kind of look at the list of winners and you're like, oh yeah, Hungary Hungary aren't there. It's strange. Yeah. Yeah. So there was also some allegations of of doping in the Germany team. So it's worth noting that doping was not illegal in 1954. Doping controls were only introduced by FIFA in 1966. So after uh, immediately after the, the this match in 1954, the World Cup final, rumors had emerged that the German team had taken performance enhancing uh, substances. Several members of the team fell ill with jaundice um, afterwards, presumably from a contaminated needle, because, you know, this is um, the good old time of sharing needles and just sticking it from one arm into another. (laughs) Members of the team later claimed that they had been injected with glucose. The team physician uh, in 2004 said that he had only given them vitamin C. There was a University of Leipzig study done in 2010 that hypothesized that the German players, unbeknownst to them, may have been injected with a methamphetamine, a stimulant that was given to soldiers in World War II, um, but they couldn't sort of definitively say. They just sort of looked at the, the timelines and the effects and everything, and they hypothesized that that may have been what happened. Yeah. So I'm not sure that would have... Compl- I mean, it doesn't completely surprise me, because I think if you... Have you ever read Blitzed, the, um, the Norman Ola book? No. It's about drugs in Nazi Germany. So there's, a, I got it on Kindle last year, maybe, year before. And it's basically about um, drugs in Nazi Germany and how okay. like the Third Reich... It, the, the book kind of claims that not just German soldiers and civilians, but a lot of the Third Reich sort of used, commonly used methamphetamine. So that kind of, you know, it's 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 possible that they kind of transitioned that into maybe... that the it, The facilities were there should we say to maybe mm. transition that into into the 54 winning world cup side i mean it's the book the book itself is just full of quite spurious claims of it's really interesting but um there's a okay. lot of questions at the end of it i kind of had was like mm, there's that, did that really happen but it's it's a dead interesting book but yeah it's like just how drug use among the third reich um how like how heavy it was and how laden yeah. throughout it was and the book kind of suggests that like the nazi war machine essentially just ran on drugs kind of given as stimulants mm. from everyone from the top brass down to foot soldiers so that all the troops basically just, just going, had, yeah. they just had superhuman energy um turning them into little murdering machines <laughs> so mm. that was essentially what that that was what was suggested in the book and when i looked into the kind of doping allegations that kind of came to my mind i was like oh yeah well the facilities were there kind of the like they were support like that that kind of third reich and the nazi mm. germany were supposedly pioneered like a lot of synthetic substances so oh, okay I mean, it could have happened so mm. yeah there's a lot of like i think also the the kind of win and the performance were like credited to to adi dassler as well the shoemaker yes. who kind of, he yeah. he kind of pioneered these removable studs and he gave all the players free boots essentially yeah the, fir- the first ever boots with screw in studs yeah that were kind of supposedly you're supposed to be able to adapt them depending on the weather conditions mm. as he gifted them to each member of the team and as the as the rain kind of poured down on the pitch the studs can kind of be unscrewed and screwed back in and you know the west germans kind of got the upper hand as the game wore on because the pitch was just a complete mess and so there's yeah. a lot that goes into this whether it's the doping allegations or the free boots tactical little tactical mischief i suppose <laughs> As, yeah, as, to, as to what goes into this win and another good uh, book recommendation if if um, you're looking to find out a bit more about you know much more depth around sort of the, the history of certainly west german and then german football i'd highly recommend uli hess's book tour um, which is a pretty 
you know, it's the complete, it's the Bible of everything yeah. that's happened in, in German football. It's kind of the, the go-to place. It's like John Foote's Calcio is for Italian football. <laughs> uh, Uli Hess's tour is that for German football. So, yes, do you've got a few book recommendations there as well, listeners. So, you know, lots of, lots of additional material to, to <laughs> go and check out. But thank you very much for listening today. Next time on Got Got Need, we are looking at Jack Charlton's Ireland. Specifically, we are going to be watching the the, the movie that came out not too long ago uh, called Finding Jack Charlton. It's all about Jack Charlton's Ireland, and we're going to be talking about that that movie and you know his, his Ireland team and just everything around it. And um, yeah, so join us then to to dig into that and uh, we we hope that you'll join us for the journey thank you very much liam yeah no problem enjoy that one thank you no worries and we will speak to you again soon 